Hey listeners, my name is Elisha, the founder of the Witnesses Podcast. It's so beautiful to have you listening to our podcast. And I want you to know something that that means a whole lot to me. Thank you for tuning in. And one thing I love to tell all of our listeners is, it's not just about you listening, but listening to understand. Understanding is the most important thing. So important. So, you have to listen, learn, and practice. Thank you so very much and happy listening. Okay, so Maurice, let's get to it. Um, introduce yourself. Tell me more about you. What are the things that we've got to know about you? All right. Well, um, I think something that most people are, are surprised to hear that I, my journey started as a homeless runaway at age 13. Mm-hmm. Came from a very violent, um, dysfunctional, um, uh, really messed up family. Uh, and I felt safer being on my own in the streets of LA than being home. Um, I was I worked alongside migrant workers in order to feed myself, and those work credits allowed me to get a GED at age 15. But by age 19, I was already married. I had a toddler. When I got when I, I got the strangest answer to a prayer ever. Uh, I was asking the Lord if I could send my wife back to school, work so I could get, get a different job. That because my current the job I had at the time was really hard. Okay. Um, and the Lord told me to go to college, which mm. I thought was hilarious, given the fact that I didn't graduate high school. Mm. I was functionally illiterate. I had never taken college exa- uh, entrance exams. Mm. I thought it was a ridiculous request. Um, but I, I miracle of miracles, I got accepted. And um, that that act of obedience, and then I well, I, I threw the I threw the acceptance letter away, thinking, okay, my gosh, this is, I thought college was for the really smart people. I thought they'll take anybody. Um, but I threw the letter away. I still didn't have any money to go to college. I still barely had the money to you know keep working and and, and doing all that. And then on the very next day, I got a letter from someone okay. who felt that God had put it on their heart to send me to college. Ooh. So that event changed my life. It changed wow. my my trajectory. It changed my uh, um, my understanding of the world. Mm-hmm. I ended up with multiple degrees. Mm-hmm. I got a scholarship to go to grad school as well as an acceptance to go to Harvard grad school based on designing a macroeconomic model that outperformed yeah. the Federal Reserve here in the U.S., which is one mm-hmm. of the biggest banks in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, that got me grad school it got me a lot of attention it got me my first job at IBM and I spent 36 years in fortune 100 career okay. continuing to be an innovator in uh, internet technologies and networking technologies and artificial intelligence and okay. a number of other uh, a number of aspects okay. and um, I retired a few years ago to write books Ooh. And um, my, I write thriller books that have been compared yeah. to Dan Brown, Robert Ludlum, Irish Johansson, a lot of the, uh, even Tom Clancy, mm. <clears throat> and they're all founded and based on true stories, true events, true Ooh. technologies, true Ooh. politics, Ooh. religion, history, very deeply researched, and they bring in a real-world plausibility into the scenario that I think is a lot of fun and educational. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, and, and these are real experiences that caught my attention and I had lived a, a good life. 
One of them was um, my espionage, my artificial intelligence espionage series, which is Swarm and The Last Ark. Both of those started when I discovered that a program had escaped the Lawrence Livermore Laboratories at Sandia, which is a well-known NSA spy lab. So a spy program escaped the NSA spy labs and they didn't know how to find it. I thought, okay, well, this is a really great story. Yeah. I said, either somebody in the spy lab is going to get fired for slipping to the, to, and this, I found this out through an Associated Press article. So it was a validated article. Hmm. So either somebody in Associated Press messed up, they should, it was a typo. They should have said it was lost or yeah, yeah, yeah. broken or didn't work, you know, um, or somebody at the lab was in deep trouble because they basically told somebody <laughs> at the Associated Press that the program has, but I was, that was enough for me. I, I spent, I cut that little article out. I taped it on my monitor. I spent months trying to figure out how a program could escape the NSA labs, what the NSA, which implied some kind of intent. Yeah. Which implied yeah. some kind of intelligence. Yeah. Yes. Which implied yeah. the ability for the program to move itself mm. and then go back and erase the computer log trail so that they didn't know where it went. Oh. That's an amazingly powerful, compelling stealth technology. They, they must have had some specific use for to know that you want that technology. So when I figured that out, yeah. um, two FBI agents showed up at my door. So apparently mm-hmm. I had nailed it. Uh, yeah, two FBI agents showed up at my door. My wife was not too happy about it. She was like, why are there two FBI sitting in our dining room? What did you do? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like, hey, I, 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 I didn't do anything. <laughs> yeah, she was not too, she was not too happy about that event but uh, they they wanted me to um i had produced a webisode series about this and they'd want me to take it down i i laughed at them i told them no they they went to a studio and they killed the deal that we were working on and i had to tuck my tail between my legs and lost a lot of money but uh, i never forgot that incident and that's the foundation for um two of my books um so yeah they're all my books are based on something real another one that you might be familiar with more yeah. so than people here in america the um the, the last arc and yeah. underneath the the books the idea that a artificial intelligence has decoded in time prophecy but not with a lot of the same dogma and overly religious interpretation of allegories that you get from some prophecy teachers it's actually looking at statistical probabilities of prophecies of prophecies being fulfilled in a, a single generation mm-hmm. and so it's looking at it from a mathematical model perspective okay and i i had it do that because i did i built that same model a number of years ago and so i was look trying to find an objective way of evaluating prophecy that mm-hmm. got rid of a lot of the typical cultural religious um, racial um uh, nationalistic biases that you get in a lot of interpretations it's not us the antichrist is those guys over there um there's it's always somebody else we're always the good ones that are going to get raptured before anything goes wrong and everybody else is the reason why the world's coming to a part and i realized that there was an inherent bias in that so i wanted to get rid of it so i actually started taking um, documented cases of fulfillment and then running probability models of, of those things being fulfilled and then being fulfilled in a single generation. Mm. 
And that model produced yeah. um, one in 1.4 trillion against random chance. So even if my numbers were off by a factor of 100, that's still an amazingly high number. So that started changing my perceptions of the world, of world news, of politics, economics, um, even pop culture started changing with, with a lot of that. Amazing. Now, as part of prophecy, yeah. there's a prophecy of a third temple, which I always thought was highly unlikely, given the, the history of the Temple Mount. Okay. Um, but I wanted to, I started researching what were some of the, maybe some of the aspects of a third temple that might come into play. And one of the things I researched was the Ark of the Covenant that was in Ethiopia for 2,600 years. Actually start was, went from Jerusalem to Elephant Island in Egypt for 900, for several hundred years before the Romans chased it out. It came to yeah. went to Ethiopia and synagogues for several hundred years before the Templars said, no, no, we want this in churches. And so it was there for hundreds of years. Bottom line, a long history, lots of documentation, scrolls, archaeology, uh, ruins of the temple in the in Elephant Island, lots of factual evidence to suggest that whether or not you believe this is the one true ark made by Moses, which it's not. Um, it was used in temple worship. It was used uh, for sacrifice. It was yeah, used, yeah. and it's been revered as a relic. What most people don't know is that in January 21, okay. an Ethiopian militia and army basically stormed the city of Axum, killed 750 men, women, and children, and the ark was stolen and then sold on the black market. Now, in my books, I speculate who would have the power, the money, and the desire for an ancient Jewish relic that would, would do something like that. And so that plays into the book, along with a second arc. Yeah. Now, in the 1960s, there was um, a scroll found outside Jerusalem and along the Dead Sea near, near Qumran, where all the other Dead Sea Scrolls were found. But different than the other Dead Sea Scrolls, Okay wasn't hidden in jars it was hidden behind a brick mud wall uh, not a brick mud wall but a fake mud wall uh, okay. to look like the cave so it was it was hidden even from the people of the of Jesus's time when they finally were able to unroll the, this very brittle copper and and read it they discovered that it had 64 locations where pre-babylonian temple priests had hidden tens of billions of dollars of temple treasures Ooh. and it gave specific locations for those treasures. Now, for 50 years, people have been searching all over Jerusalem trying to find these locations, and all of them have failed. Yeah. Um, about seven years ago, however, somebody okay. came along and said, no, no, he decoded all 64 locations underneath the ruins of Qumran itself. He was so good at what he had defined that he went to the Israeli Sanhedrin, the group that wants to rebuild the third temple, convinced them. They went to the Israeli Archaeology and Antiquities Group, which is responsible for all digging any, on anything anywhere in, in Israel, convinced them to go out and do a metal scan. The metal scan found non-ferrous metals, in other words, gold, silver, at every single one of the locations. But they only dug down a couple of feet to test the theory and then quickly claimed there was nothing there and covered it up. And the reason why they had to cover it up was that Qumran is part of the Palestinian West Bank. 
legally, if they were to dig there, they would all everything they would find would go into this military warehouse, then this this multinational tribunal. Essentially, people would never see anything again. And so that was when they basically tried to cover up the story, and also when Netanyahu started talking constantly yeah. about a single-state solution. Because for Israel, only under a single-state solution will they be able to dig up their ancient treasures and keep them. Hmm. So we've now got two arcs, potentially okay. two arcs, that are within reach, uh, either already obtained or within reach, and that's the part of the premise of my my book, The Last Arc. So I, I'm bringing in a lot of factual legs to to build the story up. And underneath that is a constant, is a um, is a theme of prophecy. So, yeah, because it, but I'm not doing it in a very religiously dog, heavy dogmatic way, where, where it's I'm trying to speak to non-Christians in a sense, more as much or more so than Christians, to basically say you don't eat. It, you have to that the, the probabilities are so astronomically high against random chance that should be getting someone's attention who's rational in the world and if the prophecies are true about these things that were highly unlikely ever to occur and now they all have um, what else does scripture tell us uh, that we should be paying attention to and so it's a lead-in uh, for that conversation. As the books will develop, the characters will each go through a, spirit, a spiritual awakening of their own, uh, each in their own different way. So it's really a setup for the, uh, the last days as a thriller. Um, so it does so in the Dan Brown kind of style, where you're constantly going from one place to another, finding little clues to what's really going on. Cool. That's so, so, so interesting. Guy Morris, did I pronounce it right? Morris or Morris? Big card? Your um, your surname? Is it Morris or Morris? Morris, M O R R I S. Yeah, okay, Morris. Right. Okay, thank you. That's so so interesting. I'm so glad that I'm actually speaking to someone who's so intelligent because it's written all over you that you're intelligent. That that's so good. So let us let me ask you. A question, all right. <clears throat> so, tell us what inspired you to become an author. What was that thing that, or the exact thing that inspired you to start write books? Can you tell us? Do you get that? Well, yeah. You want to know what inspired me to write books? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It was, I think, a number of things. Okay. One, I think it started in college. Okay. When I, now I was functionally illiterate, so I did I rarely did any reading. I, I didn't read, and so I didn't know the joy of what it was to read a really good book, where you had an author who could take you someplace you've never been, or teach you something you didn't know, or have you experience something you'd rather not experience, but it's safe yeah. because it's within the pages of a book. Mm-hmm. Um, that and and there was a reading about and learning about men of the renaissance now men of the renaissance were interesting not just because they were now becoming enlightened but they were men that were supposed to be the idea of the men of the renaissance were to be extremely well balanced so they trained themselves in science 
in business, in religion, in the arts. They wanted to be able to, in order to understand life, you had to be able to be, have a fundamental understanding of all aspects of life in order to really kind of reflect it well. Mm-hmm. And that, that really inspired me. So even during my career, when mm-hmm. I was working for companies like Microsoft and Oracle and very big companies, mm-hmm. I would write songs for Disney or I, I led worship at a, at a local church. Um, I um, created the webisode series based on that spy program I discovered. I was always wanting to do something that could balance the left brain with the right brain, the creative or the analytical with something creative. Um, and that in, in hopes would keep me from becoming a, a total total nerd and a total geek. Um, but it was also the, the spirituality was something that I, I had to look at. Now, in my career, Yeah. I was in a perfect condition, perfect position to understand what people are taught on their news and that versus how co- large corporations really worked. Mm-hmm. And it started making me aware of the, the level of greed, um, mm-hmm. the level of deception, the level of um, it, it's not possible for everybody to win. There can only be so, so many winners. Yeah. And that kind of mentality. That mentality, yes. Yeah. So I, I, I rejected that. I, I did, because I was a Christian, I had a hard time accepting that as, as, as the right thing to do. Yeah. Now, so the other thing that inspired me to write was um, I wrote, when, one of the things I did when I was still working was I wrote a short story for my son when he was about 11 or 12 years old. Okay. And the research for that short story, just the sequel to that short story took me well over 10 years. He was no longer a child at that point, so I had to rewrite the entire story for an adult. But the process of researching yeah. um, was always because I didn't want to, they say you're supposed to not, you're supposed to only write what you know, but there were a lot of things I don't know. So I wanted to go find them out. It's not that I didn't want to write about that topic, I just wanted to know more about that topic. And so I found that the research was fun. Now I retired because this, you can only live with so many years of the intense stress that you get in Fortune 100 companies working 16 plus hour days, six Ooh. days. Seven um, And I, I did really well at that for a while. And then I then I just reached the point where I just, I couldn't do it anymore. I was just burned out. But my mind is still active. Mm-hmm. And the worst thing I would want to do with my life, I, I felt when I got a chance to go from being poverty, uh, very poverty strict, um, um, constrained childhood okay. to going to college and changing my life that I was given an opportunity. And the opportunity wasn't so I could make a lot of money and then be lazy. The opportunity was that God was taking me through a lot of experiences where I would be learning some deep things and I had to figure out how to write about them. And so um, I I write because I love to do something creative. It keeps me extremely busy doing research and promotions and writing and re- and editing and, and all of the things that you have to do in order to, to build up a book business. Um, but I've, I've got a message. I've got a theme that's in my heart. The idea that I can statistically prove that we've entered into the last days. I was about to <laughs> that. And not because I listen to a teacher and he thinks 
he interprets the scripture this way, or this guy interprets this this other way. It's not about the allegory. The allegories are probably what messes most people up because they can be interpreted with a lot of bias. So, but once you get past the allegory, so for example, the event that caused me to go build the macroeconomic, the, the, not the macroeconomic model, but the big probability model around about prophecy was I was reading a National Geographic article. My geographic article was talking about the loss of fish stocks on every continent. Started off with the U.S. loss of fish stocks in Asia and Africa and Latin America and how we've overfished. Population has grown so fast and we our fishing techniques have gotten better and we've overfished. We've really gotten our fish stocks down. Combined with the destruction of the reef systems around the world, this is really putting us in danger of, of putting a lot of species, fish species, at risk. Now, I was reading this, it was a very scientific article, but I, I remember thinking, well, wait a minute, there was a prophecy in Revelations called the Seven Trumpets. Yeah. In the prophecy of the seven trumpets, a third of the fish of the sea would die, a third of the birds of the air would die, a third of the beasts of the land would die, and the rivers would become so polluted we couldn't drink from them. And it dawned on me that, wait a minute, that wasn't some future event. Now, the allegory that it used in that prophecy was that a flaming rock would come down from the sky and land and all of these things would happen. Well, all of these things had already happened. And it wasn't become a, because of a, the allegory was a flaming rock. I could have interpreted that allegory of a flaming rock a hundred different ways. And I probably wouldn't have come up with how it really happened, which was man's greed and avarice and, and pride and technology, you know, chemical plants, fertilizers, plastics, you know, all of the things that we've that we've used to basically encroach on other species, yeah. to pollute the waters. Yeah. Um, and, and I started realizing two things about prophecy. One, prophecy was never meant to be written so that we could predict the future. Right, so that we could look at prophecy and say, this is going to happen in the future. Prophecy was written so that when something happened and we could get past the allegory, we could see that thing happening, we'd realize that we live in prophetic times. And that should be a call on us to make changes in our lives. Mm. So prophecy was written to understand the present as it occurs and to basically give us a warning sign, a wake-up call saying, these are the these are the signs, signs of the times that you've entered into the end times, it's time for time to change. Mm -hmm. And the other thing I realized is that prophecy, for many generations, people have seen prophecy as a warning that how, how God will destroy humanity. <laughs> well, of course, there's these flaming rocks falling from the sky, making all the you know, all these things to die. But we're already in the sixth extinction and the scientists have already documented that, but it's all been because of activities of man. So I began to realize that prophecy was really more of a warning of how man would come to destroy humanity and that God's salvation would come basically at the very end before we be, uh, before we could completely do it, do ourselves in. And so I started looking at prophecy quite a bit. So my inspiration, this is all to say my inspiration. Okay. My inspiration was the fact that I knew that I needed to be creative to balance out my intellectual anxieties on another realm. I had learned a great deal about how the world really works and, and um, in my corporate career, uh, reporting to CXOs, um, seeing all of these things happen, being involved in artificial intelligence technologies, being involved in an oil company when 
they were trying to cover up climate change research, being involved in technology as it started changing the world in multiple ways. And I had the 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 insight into realizing that I could talk about prophecy in a way that, that didn't bring in too much heavy, real heavy religious dogma, uh, but bring in more factual events to say, this is where we're at. This is the probability of us being there. And so I felt like I had something to say. So um, I creative, um, it kept, keeps me really busy. And I, I feel like I've got a message that while it's not a message most people want to hear, I think it's a message that's really good for a lot of people to have to take into consideration. Wow, that's so, so, so brilliant. Well done. <laughs> you see, I love the way you're uh, answering those questions. Now you're going so deep and that's so good. So, one last question that we come today, all right? Okay, so um, tell us about your association called Outdoor Event Network and why you started. As a early writer, uh, and I released my first book in November 2020, so right in the middle of COVID. Mm -hmm. So people weren't going to stores, people weren't really going to book signings. It was really hard for me to figure out how to promote the book. Um, and But I started experimenting with different ways of promoting online, uh, doing advertising on Amazon or advertising on Facebook or different other approaches. And I was not happy with any of them. Um, they were, I'm a business guy, so I'm always looking for the return on the investment. Yeah. If I spend $100 on an ad, I want to get at least $100 back in royalties. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it wasn't happening. I wasn't getting, it was money being spent, but not a lot of money coming back. Yeah. And I happened to stumble on uh, another author in my local area. Okay. And once a year, he went to, he and some other authors went to this festival called the Blackberry Festival. Okay. And they set up a booth of authors and they all, ba all basically sold their own books. Okay. And I went one year and my, I, my eyes, my mind started thinking, this was a great way of selling books. Okay. I got to engage my reader directly. Mm -hmm. I got to tell them some of the stories about some of the stories behind why I wrote the books. Mm -hmm. um, I got them to sign up for my newsletter. When I did sell them a book, I was making much higher margins than I would through Amazon or the bookstores. Mm -hmm. And so I, I realized that there were, I tried to see if there was any groups mm -hmm. that went to other events where they, uh, you could do, because I, after I released my first two books, I went and did some at some uh, book signings at some Barnes and Nobles, which are big bookstores. Okay. But those are one-off events. I could do maybe one of them afterwards at maybe a couple of local events, but it wasn't, it wasn't something I could do on a regular basis. So I formed the Author Event Network, to, and I couldn't find any other group to do this. So I formed Author Event Network as an association of authors. So we basically collect other authors. And then we go out in the light, live in the Seattle, Portland area. So we go out and we find events, festivals, fairs, where we can share the cost of a booth and then share the space in the booth during the time of the event to engage with readers and sell signed copies of our books. And I found that it's very successful. Um, uh, when you go to these kinds of um, festivities, there's food, there's arts, there's clothing, there's craft, there's jewelry, there's everything, but there's almost never anybody with an author signing their own book. Mm -hmm. So 
because we're a community of other authors, if somebody doesn't like thrillers, which is what I write, they might want a nonfiction. So I can point them to people writing memoirs, or I can point them to some children's books or somebody who writes fantasy or sci-fi. And so it allows us to have more than one option in the tent to attract uh, a group of readers. And the authors get to build their business. So we don't take any uh, percentage of of the sales. The author basically, once we have the the tent covered each author is basically on their own to sell as many books as they can and make the money so this is now we're going into i started it in january 21 mm-hmm. we went through 22 we did about 10 or 12 events um i make more money doing that than i do on amazon mm-hmm. uh, and then this year we're going into 2023 we've got a about 25 to 30 events lined up. So I'll be busy at events from every weekend from the end of May through the end of September. And that that's a, that's something I can repeat every single year. Um, so we can go back to the events and either get people that we sold books to the year before or get new readers, but it's a repeatable business model. So the purpose of Author Event Network is to create a repeatable model for authors to engage directly with new readers to build their readership and sell more books. And so far we've seen it works. So cool. All right. Thank you, thank you, thank you so very much, Maurice. So let's round up. Um, do you have any advice of which you would like to give anyone who is trying to um, um, write a particular book, but the person does not have the courage, or he does not even know how to go about it, or would, would I get readers at all? How am I going to promote it and all of that? What's your own advice for someone in this situation at this moment? All right. Well, first off, don't give up writing. It's not as easy as it looks. Um, it, it, it does take patience. It does take some, some guidance. Um, for me, I went out, uh, I had a good job, and so I could afford to do this. I couldn't afford to do it anymore now that I'm retired. But at one point, I went out and I hired a, a, a professional editor. I had, I had my first book drafted. I knew there was a really good story there, but it was my first book. I, I, I wasn't sure that I was doing but that I wasn't making a lot of common mistakes. And I asked this person to really rip it up. Just, just don't be, don't be bashful. Don't worry about it, not hurting my feelings. Just tell me what I need to do in order to make this into a great book. Well, she did. (laughs) She gave me 44 pages of notes and every page of the manuscript had notes on it. So I had a, over a year it took me to go through, my first impression was, oh Lord, I really suck. <laughs> Look at this. How can I be thinking about becoming an author? She did. Um, but I, finally I took it to heart and she'd done exactly what I asked her to do. And so I started taking what she had advised me to do and I read some books on plotting and books on character development and I started reading more about what I about how to be an author. Um, in some cases it's really good to join an author group where you can critique each other as you're going along. That really can help. Um, I joined the uh, online master class which had some authors in it like Dan Brown. So I took their, those classes. And I wrote the book another dozen or more times um, before it was finally ready. So I, I didn't give up. 
Now that book, which is called The Curse of Cortez, yeah. was on Book Trib's favorite 25 books of 2021. They called it Indiana Jones meets Da Vinci Code. Um, and so, and all my books have received a Kirkus recommendation, which is really hard to get in the industry. Mm. So um, I feel like it was the right direction to not, once you have the idea of a story, yeah. you can either have it be a good story, but I'm always obsessed with saying, I want to make it the absolute best that I could possibly do. Mm. And that means getting some training and getting some advice and getting somebody else to tell me, don't be afraid to suck at something new. Um, just be willing to accept the advice of what you need to do to get past that stage. Awesome. Um, and and so that was it. Just don't don't give up writing. Uh, just keep working harder at trying to be a better writer. And um, you know, write about something you're passionate about. Yeah, and, exactly. And that, that can make a big difference too about your motivation. Mm. I know that some people are wanting to write romance novels because they love romance novels. <clears throat> but they're not necessarily creative enough to basically come up with all the scenarios. Mm. So you, it does take work. You know, there's, it's, some people are just natural at it. Some people like myself have to work at it. Um, I will spend a couple of years working on each book. Um, so it's, it's a lot more effort on my part to do all the research and, and I could point my camera over in the corner I've got a stack of research for my next book that's this big um, but it's to me it's what I, I love to do it's what makes it compelling is to have something real uh, woven in between this something fictional thank you so very much Maurice that was a beautiful word so that is going to be the end of today's interview do you have any other thing to say any other thing at all uh, that's all well, go visit my website guymorrisbooks.com uh, you not only can get links to how to buy the book but there's uh, highlights to some of the major reviewers and the links to the reviews themselves these are major industry reviewers like Publishers Weekly and Kirkus and Book Life and uh, Book Trib um, you can also get some there's videos there's some uh, image libraries of actual locations and for I do uh, a fact because there's so much factual information woven into the book I feel like I have to separate the factors of the fiction so you can learn about all the things that are actually true in the books and then the few things that I I just made up fiction. so uh, it's a great place to go for a lot of that research um, and, and to learn more and uh, would love to see there Great one, that's a good and I would also um, drop you a message because I'm also an author. So I with the way you've been speaking, you're such an intelligent person. So I'll drop you a message. Is that fine? Is that fine by you? Well, I, I I love being an author. It's um, the other reason I wanted to do Author Event Network is because authors spend ninety-eight percent of their time by themselves mm -hmm. sitting behind a desk thinking, writing, outlining, editing, researching. It's a very lonely profession. Yeah. Yeah. Getting outside of that, getting out from behind that desk and getting in front of people to talk about your book is really important to recharge those batteries because you'll find that getting others engaged in what you're talking about, what you're writing about will help you stay engaged as well. So it's important to involve yourself with other author groups uh, other people who are writing to really kind of keep that enthusiasm going. 
Alright, thank you so very much, boys. Thank you so, so, so much. So, maybe we will try to reschedule another time so we can talk more. Is that fine by you? Um, sure, I can go a little bit more if you like. What right. would you like to talk about? Yeah, yeah, some other time, don't worry. I will drop your message, okay? All okay, right. thank All you. Alright, spirits. Bye. <laughs> thank you for tuning in to this incredible episode. Your support means the world to us, and we truly value you. We look forward to having you join us for the next episode. If you enjoyed what you heard, please consider rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. Your feedback is greatly appreciated.